This morning's reading is in two sections from Genesis. Uh, page 8 in the Church Bible and page 10 in the Church Bible. So, Genesis, Genesis 6 to 9. Sorry, Genesis 6, 9 to 22. Noah and the flood. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people. I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all round. Put a door inside of the ark and make it lower, and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters to the earth to destroy our life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and will with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and wives, and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male, female, to keep them alive. With you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves around the ground, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it in a way. Store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Right, going on to page 10, Genesis 9, 9, 8 to 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my living covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters. Never destroyed by the water of a flood. Never again will the, there be a flood and destroy the ark. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy our life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God 
and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said this. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Mike. So there's a, uh, a, lot, a lot there trying to condense four chapters worth of story in a little bit. So we've just got bits from the beginning and the end to set the scene. Uh, but we'll be looking at the whole story. So if, uh, if you've got a Bible open in front of you, please do keep it open. Uh, I'll kind of be referring to bits uh, in, in between. And let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our ears to hear you speaking through these old words, through this familiar story. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see new things. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would respond in obedience and faithfulness to what you speak to us through your story, through your word now. If we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're beginning a summer sermon series looking at some of the giants of faith from the Old Testament. And today, as you can tell, we're starting with Noah and the famous story of the flood. Now, perhaps more than any other, the story of Noah and the ark and all the animals going in two by two is often thought of as a children's story, isn't it? Well, you might have noticed it's not exactly suitable for kids. Uh, The story's been made into cute toy sets. Uh, Our our kids used to have one. You've got Noah and his wife, and then you've got the two animals, and you can load them up onto the little wooden ark. All very cute. But actually, this is one of the most tragic and in a lot of ways terrifying stories in the Bible, isn't it? Christian, as a, a Christian comedian that, that, that Angie and I um, really like, a guy called Tim Hawkins, uh, and he asked this question, why on earth do we think that it's a good idea to, um, to paint scenes from this story on like kids' bedrooms and things? And he imagines a father saying to his, uh, saying to his child, you know what, this is one of my favorite stories. Would you just grab a paintbrush and, grab a, uh, and paint a few more screaming children and, on, uh, and screaming people on that rock over there? That'd be great. That'd be wonderful. This is a frightening story. So being no doubt about it whatsoever, this is not a cute story at all. But the story of the flood is also a stumbling block to a lot of people. Uh, not only are there those who, who ask whether we're to read the story literally as the record of an historical event or whether it's, uh, we should read it as some kind of uh, fable or like a, a, myth, a mythological legend, but then there are also those who take offense at the, the apparent moral of the story. So, so Richard Dawkins, for instance, in his book, The God Delusion, argues that uh, from his point of view, he says the moral of the story is that God took a dim view of humans, so he drowned a lot of them, and also, for good measure, the rest of the presumably blameless animals as well. This is a pretty complicated story, actually. 
Uh, and it, but in all its apparent moral ambiguity and uh, the difficult difficulties of interpreting it and reading it rightly, I also want to say this is a really valuable story, really valuable. Because yes, the story of the flood, it is tragic and it is terrifying, but it's also a story of grace, a story of faithful human responsiveness to a God who's determined to love his creation. And so the mistake that Richard Dawkins and others make when they read this story, if in fact they actually have read the story rather than just kind of a caricature of it, is that they assume it's about the flood, but it's not. The story isn't about the flood, and it's not really about Noah either. It's about God, just like every other story in the Bible. It's a story about God's judgment and God's grace. It's a story about God's resolve, his determination, his unbending desire to be nothing and no one else other than God with us. God for us. Even if we are sinful, broken, messed up people. That's what this story is about. And the main point of the story isn't the death under the destruction It's that death and destruction are not the end. The Bible doesn't finish at Genesis chapter 6. The take-home message is that God is unwavering in his commitment to humanity. Even though, as it says, uh, the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. That's the good news that I wish Richard Dawkins would hear. Now, ultimately, in in a lot of ways, the actual historical details of the story don't matter as much as what what the story says. You know, uh, Israel's ancient neighbors, the Sumerians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they all had their own versions of flood stories. A legend of great water sent by the gods to punish and destroy humanity. It wasn't something novel to the Israelites. But in those stories, the accounts are all, uh, the gods are mean and vindictive. They're consumed by anger and ultimately self-interest. Why, why am I telling you that? Well, because in the context uh, of the ancient Israelites, everybody had a flood story. It was just a given. But the question is, why tell this flood story? Because it's a lot different. Why tell this story unless it was to offer a more truthful account of who God is and the way God works in the world? And so if you want to know what, uh, what the story is really about, then we have to look at the end. And we'll do that in a moment. But before we look at the end, let's just remind ourselves of the beginning. God's judgment on a world gone wrong. So uh, verses 5 and 6 uh, of chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Notice God's judgment isn't said to be motivated by, by wrath or anger so much as by grief. By intense sadness, 
the Lord was sorry. It grieved him to his heart. He looked at what he'd made. This isn't the way it's meant to be. This isn't the world I made. God saw how human hearts were always inclined to evil, to doing the wrong thing, and it saddened him. And yet, if you uh, have got your Bible open, just flick, flick forward to chapter 8, verse 21. Because you'll see there that the same reason for God's judgment is also the reason for God's mercy. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, so after the flood, Noah offers a sacrifice, and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. In other words, the flood has changed nothing. Humans before the fall, a mess. Humans after the fall, a mess. Humanity is just as flawed, just as rebellious, just as sinful after the flood as it was before the flood. So this should be making us ask the question, so what's the point of the story? What's the story driving at? And John Calvin makes this point. He says, if, if God were to deal with us as we deserve, the flood would have to become a daily occurrence. Rather, what the flood story shows us is that God is determined to be with us as we are. Uh, my old professor in Durham, uh, who, uh, wonderful man of God, Walter Moberly, puts it like this. He said, humanity remains undeserving of the gift of life, but the gift will be given nonetheless. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. And so we live not because, we des- not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but because God is so generous. He just gives it. Uh, St. Augustine, back uh, in kind of third, fourth century, wrote of the fall that God judged it better to bring good out of evil than not to permit any evil to exist at all. And the same is true of the flood. In fact, you might say that the story of the flood is the story of the fall writ large. Now, I remember, um, I, I'm a big fan of kind of yes minister, yes prime minister. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone here who kind of is as well. But there's an episode, I can't remember which one of the two it is, uh, where there's a new hospital that's built. And this hospital is pristine. It's wonderful. The equipment is bright, shiny, new. Uh, you know, it's got a full complement of, uh, of nurses and doctors. And it stays that way. They don't have any patience in it. They would only make the place dirty. They would only clutter it up. They would only make the, 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 all that expensive equipment, uh, kind of make it, make, make it older, give it more wear and tear, so they're not putting any patience into it. And it's a little bit like that with what God does in this story. If you want a perfect world, pristine, without any blemishes, just get rid of the lot of us because it's us that are doing it. It's the only way you're going to be clean. If you want a clean hospital, get rid of the patients. If you want a nice orderly school, get rid of the kids. Probably get rid of the staff as well. It's, it's the same here. So what this story 
is really about is that God would rather endure the pain of sinful humanity than be without humanity. You know, as Alfred Lord Tennyson famously wrote, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. He would rather get hurt loving us than not have us to love. That's amazing. And of course, that's what we see most clearly at the cross. Jesus would rather die on a cross for love of our love than not love us. And in the midst of this great story of judgment and grace, we have Noah, whose faith becomes the means by which God mediates his covenant of grace for ongoing future relationship between humans and gods. And Noah's faith is a model of what God's continuing purpose for life on earth looks like. His faith is a picture of what it means to live in a relationship with God the God who gives us life. And so in the, in the rest of the time that we have just focusing on this, I just want to pick out three aspects of his faith that we see here in the flood story. First, his intimacy with God. Second, his obedience to God. And third, his gratitude to God. And I want to suggest, in fact, I want to do more than suggest, each of these is absolutely vital for us as well if we want to be men and women of faith. Men and women who are responsive to the God who gives us life in and through Jesus. So then, uh, first, um, let me just draw your attention to, to chapter 6, verse 9. If you've got your Bible open, have a look with me. Towards the end, chapter 6, verse 9. Depending on your translation, it might read slightly differently, but the essential point is, Noah walked faithfully with God. Noah walked faithfully with God. There are only two people in the Bible of whom it's said that they walked with God. A bit of a Bible trivia quiz. Can anyone name me the other person? Enoch, well done Marie. You get a gold star afterwards. In Amos, the prophet Amos, uh, chapter 3, he asks, do two walk together unless they're in agreement? In other words, do two people walk together unless they go in the same way? Think about that image of walking with God. What does that say? Well, to walk with someone is to be going the same direction as them. But it's not just going the same direction, it's going the same speed. Not dawdling behind. Not running off ahead. It's being together alongside them. And if any of you are walkers here, uh, I'm sure quite a, you know, a number of you are, what happens if you're walking with people along, you know, if you're going for a, for, a, for, a, for a nice walk in the countryside, what happens? Conversation, you're talking with each other. And it's that constant conversation, but it, it isn't an appointment, it's just natural. This intimacy just a natural conversation. And when you're walking with someone, you notice things together. You might point out, can you see that, that tree over there? Isn't it beautiful? Don't you love the colors of the blossoms? or Whatever it might be, you notice things together. You share life together. And it says Noah 
did that with God. Noah did that with God. The first half of that verse says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And as we've heard, the generation was wicked and corrupt. But Noah was different. There's the American essayist called Henry David Thoreau who once said, if I seem to walk out of step with others, it's because I'm listening to a different drumbeat. That was Noah. That was Noah. And that can be a really uncomfortable place to find ourselves in. If our allegiance is to God above all, then the fact is that we will look very different from those around us who don't have that same allegiance. Faith in God is countercultural. There'll be times when the world around us will point at something and say, look at this, isn't this amazing? Don't you want to celebrate it? And there'll be times when we have to say, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't get on board with that. Or as Jesus said, there'll be times when they sing a dirge and they want you to cry and we can't. There'll be times where they sing a happy song and want us to sort of join in the celebration and we can't because we're listening to a different drumbeat. And that's not easy. We'll be misunderstood, we'll be misinterpreted, we'll be unfairly characterized. But as Paul says to the Philippians, If we live out our faith, we will shine like stars in the world, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. There is no such thing as an indistinguishable Christian. And the second aspect of Noah's faith that I want to draw our attention to is his obedience. Look with me at verse 22 of chapter 6. Okay, let me just give you a bit of the, the, the background just to remind ourselves. God tells Noah there's a flood coming, that Noah's to make an ark, to gather two of every kind of animal into it, along with every different kind of food. And then it simply says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Now, there are some great understatements in the Bible. I think my favorite has to be uh, with the story of Jesus raising Lazarus when it says the dead man came out of the cave. And that's a pretty good understatement right there. This one's not far behind. God told Noah what to do. Noah did it. Simple as that. Noah did everything just as God commanded him and for no other reason than God commanded him it's like the story of Jesus walking on the water uh, and then Peter steps out of the boat why because Jesus says come do you know anyone else who's ever walked on water and why because he was obedient to Jesus call There's no calculation involved. There's no, can I do it? Um, What's in it for me? What will Andrew think? He just does it. And wouldn't that be an amazing thing 
for someone to inscribe on your, on your headstone. I know I, I would want this to, you have people to be able to say this of me. God told Steve what to do, and Steve did it. I think that would be a pretty fine thing for someone to be able to write about me. And notice this as well, that in that verse, it says, Noah did all God commanded him. All. That's important. Everything. The whole shebang. He didn't pick and choose. It wasn't a kid at the pick and mix counter. Well, I like this bit of what you're asking me to do. Don't particularly like that bit, so I'll leave that. Thank you very much. Like the cola bottles. Don't like the fizzy lemons. No, he did all that God commanded him. He didn't say, well, you know what, God, I figured you probably didn't actually want the rats, so I left them to drown. No, he got the rats as well. He didn't say, well, I know you said cypress wood, but you know, that was a little bit further off, so there were some oak trees here, so I just made it out of oak instead. That, I mean, that's all right, isn't it, God? No, he did all that God commanded him. That's what faith is. Being faithful to what God tells you to do. Even if it doesn't make sense. And you know what, there's something else in that, that verse. And it's, you, know, you can read over it and gloss over it so easily, but have you ever noticed this? There's nothing in the story of Noah to suggest that he was a skilled joiner or a carpenter. There's nothing in the story to suggest that he was a zoologist or trained in animal husbandry. God doesn't call the equipped... He equips the called. God told him to do it. He did it. And apart from the odd looks from his, uh, his neighbors who probably thought he was completely barking mad for building a giant boat in the middle of the desert for a storm that nobody thought was coming, Noah's faith led him to action. That's what faith does. You don't really believe something if it doesn't lead you to action. And notice this as well. It's part of the story, um, so go away and read it, uh, but, you know, and you'll see this. Do you know how long it takes Noah to build that boat, according to the story? 120 years. 120 years working for a storm that you can see absolutely no sign of whatsoever, but that God's told you is coming. Now, yeah, we, we might imagine, kind of, yeah, imagine uh, God puts on someone's heart to be a doctor, uh, and, and that's what he's calling them to do. Now that's, yeah, uh, goodness, I don't know, what, 10 years, kind of university, I don't know, probably, and then residency and all of that, probably, you know, probably 15, but 120 years. You know, the trees don't chop themselves. The pitch doesn't paint itself. The animals probably took a bit of cajoling, especially the camels. And I have to, you know, truth be told, I think I'd probably take some cajoling to go get the snakes. 
I think that probably would have been one of those situations in which I would have said, you sure, Lord? Sure. But this was a long obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson calls it. God's call is often like that. He might call you to do something, and it might take years, years before you see anything come of it. The Apostle James famously says that faith without works is dead. And so our faith has to change the way that we live. You know, Jesus says in John 15, You are my friends if you do what I command you. The sign, the, the proof, the evidence of our faith is in obedience. And that brings us to the third and final point of the story that I just want to draw out for us. That Noah's gratitude to God. What's the first thing that Noah does when the waters subside and he leaves the ark? He builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice to God as a way of surrendering himself to God. A way of saying, thank you. He acknowledges God as God. He recognizes that his life is God's gift and he surrenders himself back to God. Yeah, the story of the flood, just as the story of the cross as well, is, is a story of God's grace, God's mercy. And yet Noah also understands that that grace, that mercy, can't, can't lead to indifference. We can't just shrug our shoulders. Rather, we have to live life in such a way that recognizes that it's a gift. Our lives belong to God. So the story of the flood is a story of God's judgment and God's grace. God hates sin. That message comes through loud and clear in the story. But God loves sinners. And that message comes through loud and clear in the story as well. And just like the rainbow which appears after the storm, which lights up the sky against the backdrop of the receding black clouds, the story of the flood says that ultimately light wins out of, uh, over darkness. Beauty wins out over chaos. Life wins out over death. God is absolutely determined to be God with us, to be Emmanuel. And what does Noah show us about what a faithful human response to God looks like? First of all, it looks like walking with him bending our footsteps to his. Just going the same way, the same direction, talking together, listening. Second, it looks like responding obediently to his word. Not only doing what he says, but doing everything that he says, even if it's go get the snakes. Third, it looks like receiving your life as a gift every day knowing that our lives belong to Jesus. We're sinners, but God loves us anyway, and he's determined to be with us. Jesus, before he died, said he had a baptism to be baptized with, and that word baptism means submersion. 
Jesus was flooded at the cross so that he could make a way for us to be with God forever. That's the good news. The good news is that Jesus was flooded for us. That flood, that bow that God hangs in the sky is a bow pointing up to God's own heart. And that arrow is unleashed into Jesus at the cross so that it will never, ever be unleashed to us. That's the good news. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you uh, for this familiar story and we thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith of Noah, a faith that walks with you, a faith that obeys you, a faith that surrenders everything to you. Lord, make this story come alive in us in a new way and give us a kind of faith like Noah had that we might be shining stars in the midst of this generation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're going